0: I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians.
1: Yeah, Mio in the Land of Faraway is Christian Bale's first film. Uh, it came out the same year as Empire of the Sun. Okay. Christian Bale, not Kristen Bell. Correct. <laughs> well, he plays uh, Yum Yum. He's the like support. Like, There's the main boy, and then he's the supporting boy. And it's one of those ones where it's like a child who is raised by mean step-parents, like flies to a magical land on by grasping the beard of a giant flying head. And his father is the king of this magical land, but he has to fight an evil knight to like save everybody. And it's just, it's absolutely insane. It was filmed in Amsterdam. The version that we got is dubbed into English. Like the, the actual voice acting is good, but the dubbing is not very well done. So it's all a little (laughs) bit out of sync. And it's just, it's weird and wild and I love it.
0: I I, I failed to recall the name of the movie uh, while we were just doing the Willow just now, but um, a guy named Roger Christian, who I believed worked on the camera department for Empire Strikes Back, got, I don't know, like 50 grand or something from George Lucas to make a short film called Black Angel, that in some theatrical releases in the first run of Empire Strikes Back, played before empire strikes back and it's a it's a fantasy story about a knight and rescuing someone and a lot of weirdness and i and the more i watched willow the more i was like this is what george lucas wanted to do to begin with and he sent this guy out and gave him money to be like i want you to do the first pass on what a lucas Lucas lucas-esque sort of fantasy kind of movie will be and it's utterly fascinating because uh it's filmed probably in similar similar place that willow was filmed but it doesn't have any of like the gloss or sheen or anything but it's it's amazing because he clearly lucas clearly had these things in his head that he was trying to spool out and it just took him a while to get
2: there The, the strange thing i think really with um both george lucas and steven spielberg is that they were all part of a generation of filmmakers and they were like these two weird outliers that you have the rest of these like the coppola's and the, um, the Scorseses and they all want to do these massive like crime epics or they want to do these biopics on things, you know, people like, you know, uh, Raging Bull or they want to do Apocalypse Now. And, they, and then you have Steven Spielberg and George Lucas who want to do sort of fun fantasy adventure films, which probably to the rest of these guys like Brian De Palma and stuff just feel weirdly quaint. And I've got to wonder how weird that is where it feels like there's this generational shift where you have sort of these young kind of baby boomer filmmakers that are kind of coming out of the Vietnam War years and they want to do these sort of like dark, you know, Serpico kind of morality to their films. They want to they want to challenge things. These guys no, we want to go back to the things we loved when we were kids and it's a very different sort of mentality and these guys all knew each other and all traveled in the same circles and i have to wonder what did what did people like scorsese and you know Coppola what do they think of things like when so they got to see a script for star wars
1: <laughs> i have to imagine that you know they were just operating on like completely different psychic planes you know you have somebody like uh, martin scorsese coming out today Saying, like, oh, you know, these Marvel movies aren't really films, which is a laughable statement for, like, the most profitable profitable movies in the world. Probably, let's have, like, five most profitable movies in the world at this point. Um, You know, I just, I think that those guys were... Kind of doing their thing and it exists in this very different headspace. And then you had Lucas and Spielberg to to my mind are both operating on this idea of there were all of these like wonderfully great imaginative things from when we were kids that they just didn't have the technology to represent. And now we do. And yeah, you know, you're talking about like state of the art technology of yeah. the nineteen seventies and eighties. Well,
0: there's there's a big there's also a big thing you're missing is clearly the De Palmas and the Coppolas and the Scorsese's never wanted to be Hollywood. And there's there's a big distinction between Lucas and Spielberg. Even though they ended up being fast friends and and collaborators, Lucas never wanted to be in Hollywood. He no. was always like, "Fuck you! I don't, I'm going to do what I want." That's he's he operated from you know from American Graffiti on. He operated under the assumption that I don't want to be I don't want to be filming on a lot. I don't want to live in L.A. I don't want to deal with uh, these assholes. I want to deal with a studio. Yeah, I mean, the first six Star Wars movies are technically independent films, right? And Spielberg is the opposite. Spielberg is the guy who said, I want to take over Hollywood, right? So um, it's just, they uh, they just different philosophies. And in a way, it's interesting that you're talking about that film brat sort of generation. They all just sort of ended up finding their own niches to park themselves into. Because, you know, I don't think I would want to watch a Star Wars movie made by Martin Scorsese. kind of do now.
2: <laughs> after, after a bunch of Disney ones, I kind of want to see what
0: Scorsese would, would do. It would be about a lot of gangsters
2: it would be like Jabba's Palace and every time it, you have to ha- go into Jabba's Palace with that Goodfellas shot <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you do something a bit like The Irishman where every time you meet a new character the text appears on the screen and tells you oh, it's like Greedo shot in the Wasley <laughs> Cantina three years in the future <laughs> and it's I think something like that might be kind of cool you're like oh yeah and then uh, Jabba the Hut strangled <laughs> by Princess Leia in five years
1: well, yeah I mean that kind of thing can really work out. And it's interesting that Marvel's been taking some of those kinds of risks, and to a larger extent, Disney. You know, they took the studio trauma guy and put him in charge of Guardians of the Galaxy, and we got something that was really wild. And increasingly, both with the Marvel stuff and to a lesser extent, Star Wars, they've been doing a lot more. Like experimental fusion type stuff like the Mandalorian, as much as like Star Wars has always been kind of like a Western, mm-hmm. it is really, really a Western. And with a lot of the Marvel stuff they've been doing, it's been like the Marvel stuff mixed with horror or science fiction or you know family comedy like buddy cops or whatever like they're they're kind of mixing things up and trying things that you wouldn't necessarily expect if they were just making safe moves and trying to churn out the exact same product every single time
2: i do find it interesting though that there's there's two different kinds of filmmakers i think as far as marvel disney star wars all that that sort of uh because i think That's the sort of thing where there's a lot of money going into these movies and they want to get a lot of money out. They want to make their billion dollars or they think it's a failure, which is kind of insane because there's a a lot of money. That's a lot of money under a billion dollars. But um, you get somebody like, say, Taika Waititi and uh, James Gunn, who have a very distinctive style They have stuff that they clearly like and want to do in their movies. There's a kind of James Gunn, Taika Waititi sense of humor. And they find a way to meld that into what from a lot of people say is a fairly heavy ish hand from Disney producers. Like they go, this has got to fit into the larger product of the mcu or star wars and these are the things that they give probably give them a list of bullet points these are the things you have to have and there's some directors the other kind of director who don't really know how to fit into that or they they want something different that's like edgar wright that edgar wright probably needs a lot more control when you look at his movies whether it's not just baby driver which probably has the heaviest example of this but Even the Cornetto trilogy, you know, things like, you know, Shaun of the Dead, The World's End and Hot Fuzz. He really wants a control of editing because his movies are really, the sense of humor is made in the editing and the music that he uses. And he wouldn't have that same level of control. Like he was originally doing Ant-Man and from the sound of it, it sounds like about 60% of that movie came from his script and his ideas. He just wasn't willing to make those sort of adjustments that really kind of made it also a marvel movie that he really wasn't comfortable with that and i would be kind of curious what that was but i think the same thing happened what was the name of the woman who directed um a uh, wrinkle in time ava duvernay ava duvernay she was apparently going to do the eternals at one point yeah for for marvel for the mcu and there was an interview with her where she talked about how she was excited to do a blockbuster like that with a lot of action sequences because she hasn't done that before. And this was an opportunity for her to learn how to do something, to fill in the holes of of things that she had never done before. And that was exciting for her because she'd come away with a skill set that she didn't have. But she said that Marvel basically came to her and said, yeah, don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about the special effects. Don't worry about the action sequences. We have this stuff like clockwork. We have people who will do it for you. You just focus on characters. And she found that intrusive where she's like, I know I don't do that stuff, but I want to learn that stuff. I've never done a a billion dollar blockbuster with special effects like that. And I want to learn how to do it. And they were like, yeah, we kind of have this done like clockwork. We'd really want to just do this thing. And I think that's that extra part where... Taika Waititi and James Gunn have found a way to fit into that thing. And other people are just not comfortable with it. Um, So I kind of wonder, does it stunt filmmakers? Are we going to get more George Lucas's and Coppola's and Scorsese's? If the biggest movie they can get, and maybe, maybe this is the, I hate almost saying this, this, the, the silver lining of the pandemic, if there even is one is that, maybe a lot of these kind of projects are moving to Disney plus as TV shows now, rather than big blockbuster movies, that there might be more space for more independent style films or filmmakers to become rock stars again.
1: I don't, I don't know that
2: I, I don't know. That's a really complicated question.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know that I agree that it's going to have that kind of impact. And I say that because, you know, at the same time that we have, yeah, you know, the last Avengers movie that cost 500 million dollars to produce or whatever and earned 1.2 billion dollars. At the same time you still have Deadpool, which mm-hmm. they made for 60 million bucks, like they cut the budget on it twice and they still turned out an amazingly good product that went on to be incredibly successful. Like I think that there's going to be more room, not less, for a wider diversity of products you know there's always going to be those big tent pool or tent pole features Yeah, you know, we're going to have three or four marvel movies every year for god knows how long until they stop being profitable but that's not necessarily on a damper uh, for people to go other places and do other things
2: I guess I guess what I'm thinking about is you know the the filmmaker driven kind of cinema and you know, that seems like a poisonous word after these sort of debates, as if there's this. I think there is a line between what Scorsese's is talking about in Marvel, because I don't think. I think he's the kind of guy who would not be comfortable. Oh, working absolutely in that word. not. But also, I think he'd want to kind of own his own characters for the most part. The weirdest thing, now that I'm thinking about it, you know who probably has the most in common with George Lucas? Is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Because he's also making. Yeah. His own upscale, expensive versions of things that he liked as a kid, except what he liked as a kid was black exploitation movies and martial arts movies. And um, this sort of the sort of violent kind of trash can cinema, you know, the grindhouse stuff, except he's doing it upscale and having Oscar winning actors appear in it.
0: I mean, I think you could just your, your larger thoughts about like what what will the way that movies and streaming stuff will move. The medium into I look at you could look at the I like Ryan Johnson is a fantastic example someone who made a couple of indie movies that were both very good and then they put themselves in the cauldron of what a lot happened to a lot of indie filmmakers is you throw them a huge like st- studio blockbuster movie and then on the other side of that they get the autonomy that they actually want and Ryan Johnson is someone who you know. Zod, bless that man! All the the shit that he had to go through directing Last Jedi, enormous pressure, all the backlash, and then he goes and Knives Out is so spectacular. fucking spectacular. It's so funny. It's so great. It's, a, it's like the kind of movie you want to watch after, right after you finish it. You want to actually see it again. Um, and it's you know maybe it's like comic book writers writing for Marvel and DC. It's like they they get the chance to write for a huge series and they're successful and they learn a lot and then they go and do their own thing. And that's that's where uh, you know I don't give a shit about superheroes. So in my in my calculus, Marvel and DC are useful because they're incubators for great talent. That doesn't necessarily mean that I care so much about The Thor movies, because they're funny and they're all right. I'm just not going to go back and watch them. But it's awesome to see what Taika Waititi is going to do after this. I mean, and
2: he hasn't stopped making other movies. So he did make Jojo Rabbit and he's probably going to make even more. I mean,
0: who would put money behind a Holocaust, uh, a Holocaust dramedy uh, from the eyes of a Jewish kid? Like not many people would. But after he's uh, given the little little
2: Nazi kid, whose imaginary friend is Hitler. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah. and Taika Waititi played Hitler in Whiteface, which is kind of <laughs> hilarious. Um, and I think he's talked about that directing a film, and you're giving people instructions while dressed like Hitler, which is a <laughs> little bit strange.
0: But yeah, the, uh, I, I like that aspect. I think the... I think the larger effect of streaming is we're already seeing it now that all the streaming services do what this the studios did for in, for film festivals. That was the place that they went and they mined uh, for new movies and new talent to basically bring them into the fold and uh, allow them to exhibit their movies. They're doing that now. There's bidding wars for shit, so they could be ex- they could be exclusive on. Who is ever a streaming platform is there, and that's that's actually that's not bad because no. you you Amazon you know Amazon Video can't only play ten movies at once. That's true, and you don't <laughs> have to worry about a movie being long.
2: That's something, right? I mean, Zack Snyder learned that you can make. By the way, the only thing I'm going to say about the four hour justice league movie. And it's the thing that I find the most interesting and nobody's talked about it yet is it's a movie that's formatted for IMAX and it's four hours long. And I'm like, what the fuck kind of superhuman can tolerate a four hour IMAX movie. That's all I want to say.
1: Clearly this movie was made solely for Randy and Superman.
2: It is pretty much, but it just seems like you'd walk out of that and you'd be like, you know Malcolm McDowell in with his eyes being pinned open in Clockwork Orange, where he just like Jesus Christ, just the sound system for four hours, and it's a fucking superhero movie, so shit is blowing up, and a bass heavy uh, soundtrack. It's just, it just seems like that's the sort of thing that the CIA would do to somebody, and then they would <laughs> after you're sufficiently broken, then they would start asking you questions, and you would tell them whatever you thought they wanted to hear.
0: On the point of the aspect ratio, the the format presentation of of uh, of Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's got to be total bullshit that he had that in mind all along because there are there are computer there are computer animated scenes that are clearly a leftover from. The original Justice League, not under not under Joss Whedon, because they're new, they're not on them, that for this are compressed. Like, you can actually see where they, to fit that sort of weird 4x3 pillar boxing, whatever they tried to do, they squished the image. There are a couple of them there. So... So, Zack Snyder himself was making this movie as a widescreen movie before because you can see the special effects that he squished to get
1: into this format.
0: Well, it's just bullshit. He's did. just doing pretentious garbage. This is the stuff about the Jack
2: Snyder <laughs> Justice sorry. League
0: that I want to talk about.
1: Didn't, <laughs> didn't Weedon do substantial reshoots, though? Yeah, it was yeah, like
2: massive. I'm, but yeah, this I'm, is the first time we have a movie where not only are they going to release a different cut of it that didn't exist, but they're going to spend the equivalent of something like the cost of Deadpool to finish his version of a movie most of which they left on the cutting room floor so now we have two finished movies that we can compare and go we know exactly what parts each person made and we've <laughs> never been able to say that with anything before so just from like a movie archaeology standpoint That is fascinating. So all the people who had their own idea of, oh, that's totally a Joss Whedon joke, or that's totally a Zack Snyder joke, uh, that you can actually know for sure now. (laughs) And that's something we've never been able to do. We just make it part of the usual sort of like dick measuring film argument nerd contests on the internet. (laughs) Well, there's
1: there's no way that they could ever have possibly done this if it weren't a pandemic year yes. where they're like, we can't go out and film. So what can we throw money at? Right. That's already been shot mm-hmm. that we can push out. Oh, Justice League.
2: All of the things that had to happen for this to exist are insane. One is this had to be a movie project that was thought of as unfinished, that there was a kind of a crazy demand. I wish this wasn't the product of appeasing the worst chuds on the internet who are never going to be happy because now they're going to want to make a recut of every other movie where it's shot through sewer water with people screaming in the rain. <laughs> but the the fact that you had to, one, the pandemic had to happen. So you had to have the pandemic you had to have an unfinished project with somebody who was already kind of on the outs from Warner brothers because of the reception of Batman V Superman. So he was already getting, getting kicked around by Warner brothers because people are like, yeah, you can't have your angry Lord Randy and Superman movie anymore. We're bringing in a lot more stuff that feels like MCU. So he's kind of cowed and already in that position. Then he has to have a horrible family tragedy that I wouldn't wish on anybody that takes him off the project and also puts him in a position where he's got to deal with personal shit. So he's not going to have those fights with the studio now because his daughter died. And that's something nobody should have to go through. And he did the human thing of saying, fuck that movie. My family's important. So he's dealing with that. And in his absence and his ability to fight for this movie, the studio goes, fuck it. We're going to make it exactly what we want it to be. And then he has to, you know, and then the, the, the pandemic happens and we're bored and we need something. And holy shit, we have a superhero movie that's technically 60% done <laughs> that we can release and also launch this streaming service that we desperately want people to subscribe to. And then you have to have the realization that Joss Whedon is a fucking creep. (laughs) So that when you undo his movie, it feels like you're erasing him from history. And you create this amazing SJW Chud alliance where everyone hates him. They hate him because he makes their movie uh, more whimsical. They hate him because he's probably a sex criminal and he bullies his employees. So we have this sort of creation of people with good and bad moral intention, Coming together. Um, And also, now that you have Ray Fisher, who was largely written out of this movie, mostly because he didn't like getting bullied by this fucking asshole, Joss Whedon. He's being restored as the heart of the movie. So there's an element of it now where there's all this goodwill where you're like, yeah, this guy gets, he gets to be treated fairly now in this version of the movie. So all of these things have to come together, all of them, or this movie doesn't happen with the goodwill it did. Cause if this movie one, there's no, no way they'd ever make a four hour movie anyways. Right because this is like this is like this is the perfect Randian project for an <laughs> Ayn Rand uh, disciple like Zack Snyder is that this is his fucking um, what was that Henry Rourke Fountainhead building that he has made where he's like no nobody's gonna tell me what to do I'm making a four hour movie with these crazy chapter sequences straight out of fucking Frazier and nobody's gonna tell me no to anything nobody's gonna hold me back and there's a movement demanding this thing happen plus everyone hates the guy who rewrote my movie now so if this movie had been released as a smaller three-hour version or whatever in 2017 people would have been way nastier to it but we've been fucking stuck indoors starved of human attention we haven't had a superhero movie we're supposed to have had a black widow movie what feels like five years ago and we're just like holy shit there's fucking superheroes punching each other Oh, thank God I can have something <laughs> to eat up maybe some of my fucking life that feels like it's taking place in the end of the world. And maybe I can think about cops not murdering unarmed black people and just think about Superman being grimdark. And <laughs> I think because of all of this shit, we are way nicer to this movie than we would have been. And the best people are like, eh, it's fine. After all of that, it's fine.
1: Well, what what is the possibility that this is merely a bellwether for something that is going to become more the norm now between streaming, giving you the ability to have far more expansive works just in general, because you're not trying to cram 10 screenings in a day. So you can have like, yeah, let's do the 18 hour cut of the Lord of the Rings or whatever. Just throw it up on streaming. And if people have to pause in the middle, so what Mm -hmm. like the, let them decide. And then on top of that, like you have an entire community that exists now online purely to recut movies. Mm -hmm. Like this is a burgeoning. Fan community that all they do is just produce new cuts. Was this using, the Phantom w- Edit that started all this? I I might have been. Yeah, the Phantom Edit. It's certainly the first one that I ever saw was the first. Didn't Topher
2: we Grace try to? Topher
1: Grace did yeah. his own edit. Like yeah. it's it's a thing now that people do, and I wonder if we're not going to get to a point where studios will actually release an assembly cut of the film, like just. Here's all the material that we shot. So it's a Lego box. Yeah. It's a le- like, cut, edit your own movie, fans and maybe if it gets like really good and really popular like you can get it to be an official cut on our streaming service and people can select to view that version when they stream it and the
2: chuds can make the version with all the women cut out of exactly it. <laughs> jesus christ like, i could i could
1: 100 <laughs> see this being a thing
2: that's that is absolutely the death of cinema that, that oh, scorsese is talking
1: about
0: <laughs> radio versus the martians is hosted by mike gillis and casey doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVsTheMartians.com.